Thank you for listening to Enabled this week. First, you will hear about a VIP, a very interesting person, followed by information about vision rehabilitation and paratransit, which were very important to our VIP of the day. The title of today's program is He Don't See So Good. Well, uh, my instinct as a retired English teacher is to get out my red pen and correct that grammar, but I will let it stand because that is the title of a chapter in a book by Margaret Barnhart, and this is the story of her husband, Charles Barnhart. He don't see so good. Her book is titled Inspirational Stories of the Visually Challenged, and the title of the chapter, once again, is He Don't See So Good, Charles Barnhart's Story. Do you suppose I might hold a record for ways to meet a husband, as in lying naked on his massage table, covered with sheets, exactly the way he told me? This was my first ever massage. I was nervous. The fact that Charlie was a blind masseur made it somehow easier. Having left the room while I prepared myself on the table, he returned. We began talking. His daughter had just moved out of town, and he was disturbed because, since he was blind, he counted on her to drive him to various locations where he paid bills, grocery shopped, and went to church. He began to drink heavily, but never missed a day of work. Charles J. Barnhart was born August 22, 1935. It was a home delivery by what's called a country doctor outside the small town of Pequa, Ohio. Charlie lived in Pequa and then Troy, Ohio, where I met him. His entire life was spent living in these two towns, although he did ride north to Sydney, Ohio, and south to Cincinnati. He traveled once to Iowa, where his first wife was from. At the age of three, Charlie moved in with his grandmother because his mother had been killed in an automobile accident. His father survived but worked full-time and was an alcoholic, therefore unable to care for a child. Charlie's third-grade class had just gone out to recess when his lights went out. In that moment, he became totally blind. He saw neither light nor shadows. His optic nerve died that day. His grandmother decided that she could not be responsible for this active blind child as she was an older woman who would raise 12 children of her own. He remained close to her until her death. The Miami, Ohio County Children's Home took him in and enrolled him in the School for the Deaf and Blind in Columbus, Ohio. But first he was taken to Fort Hayes Military Hospital, where they determined his blindness was a result of being born with congenital syphilis. He was given penicillin around the clock for, as they say, a long time. His body healed, but his blindness could not be cured. The following quotation from Scripture is relevant here. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This is from John chapter 9, verse 3. While at school, Charlie had many adventures, such as the uh, pickle-eating contest. Every student was given a large dill pickle to see who could eat it the fastest. Charlie was aware of the open window behind him, and he decided to throw his pickle out the window and be the winner. However, the window was only partially open, and his hand hit the frame, causing a break in his thumb joint. It was not taken care of medically, so he went through life with an out-of-joint thumb, a forever reminder of the day he tried to cheat. 
One day, the blind children were taken downtown to the Lazarus department store that was six stories high. They were told to go to the escalator using their canes. Charlie had never heard of an escalator or an elevator, but he learned. In school, he mastered Braille and learned to travel with a white cane. He especially loved math and history. When the school was on holiday, Charlie lived in the children's home, and you can imagine the stories he had to tell about that. When in his mid-teens, Charlie would be taken to a street corner with nothing but his white cane and a backpack filled with brooms, dustpans, greeting cards, and other assorted items for him to sell. He was pointed in the right direction, and on his own, he was expected to find the entrance to the homes. That took courage, and he did this for three years, with no cell phone. Of course, he told stories about the day he walked onto a freshly poured concrete sidewalk because his cane went under the rope designed to keep people off. And then there was the day he went up to a house, rang the doorbell, and met the butler. Heading out, he went to the next walkway, and since there was no doorbell, he knocked on the door. The same man answered the door of the same house. In addition, there were the walks into telephone poles and unexpected dangers of such things as tricycles left on the sidewalk. This was his life until he turned 17 and decided to leave school before graduation. His father had a small trailer on his property, and Charlie moved in. In the winter, it was so cold that soda and beer stored under the bed would freeze. An aunt who lived nearby would always introduce him as, This is my nephew Charles. He don't see so good. The state of Ohio provided support to the disabled. The first job they prepared Charlie for was to be an x-ray developer. He didn't like that idea because he loved to talk and didn't want to be cooped up alone in a room developing x-rays. Next, he was trained to work at the Miami County, Ohio Courthouse in Troy, Ohio, where he had a vending stand from which to sell coffee, newspapers, snacks, and other assorted items. Of course, he handled money and never found anyone cheating him. He loved meeting and talking with the lawyers and judges. Finally, he found his calling. He was trained to give massages by a licensed massage therapist at the local YMCA. He worked there and independently for 35 years. In all of those years, he knew of only one time someone cheated him, telling him that a $1 bill was a five. Since he folded the various denominations in different ways, he knew how much cash he had. He went to purchase something and didn't offer the right amount. When the client he suspected came in again and handed him a bill, he went to the front desk and asked what denomination it was. This was the culprit. She cried, promised never to do it again. When Charlie was 18, he was introduced to and ultimately married a woman named Hilda, who had been born with spina bifida. She was 30 years old and was using a wheelchair. Both legs had been removed by this time. She never went to school, but she cooked and baked great cookies. Her sister taught her to read. She made a deal. She said, marry me, and I will be your eyes if you will be my wheelchair pusher. So he agreed. Charlie and Hilda had one child whom they named Robin Rose, who lives in Tennessee, and keeps an eye on her three children and four grandchildren. Over the years, Charlie and Hilda purchased and lived in three different homes in Pequa, Ohio.
Hilda's health gradually worsened, and she went through multiple surgeries. Whether she was in the hospital or in a nursing home, Charlie faithfully visited every day. When she was eventually moved permanently to a nursing home in Troy, 20 minutes south of Pequa, he found a low-income third-floor apartment across the street. He never missed a day trekking over to visit her, including in the midst of rain and snowstorms, and he was with her the day she died. He lived alone for the next ten years, continuing to use door-to-door -door transportation that was available to the handicapped. One day, while living in Troy, shortly after joining a local spa, I was there to exercise and swim. Others told me about the blind man on the other side of the curtain in the dressing room. I noticed Charlie's sign-up sheet that he was free for an hour, so I got dressed and offered to take him for a walk. Looking down, I saw a robin's egg lying on the ground, and picking it up, I laid it in Charlie's hand. The robin embryo was still living and caused the egg to move. Charlie loved it and told me that no one had ever done that for him. After that, I began to get massages, continuing for three years. Sometime after I was divorced from my husband of 28 years, Charlie asked me if I would like to go to a church pot pie dinner with him. Uh, no, I cried, I'm not ready. He was quite disappointed because in church the previous week, God told him to pour his booze down the sink because there would be an angel on his table. Well, two weeks later, I was ready for a date and I introduced him to lamb at a Greek restaurant. We began dating and forever after he called me angel. Always in the back of my mind were my mother's words. You aren't going to marry a blind man, are you? This came when I was a freshman in college at Capital University in Bexley, Ohio. I had had three dates with a musician who had been blind since birth because he was given too much oxygen when born prematurely. I never asked my mother why she had said that, but that relationship didn't continue, so it was a moot point. In my early years as a substitute teacher, I had a blind child in my fourth grade class. I knew nothing about working with such a child. However, she was quite intelligent and independent using Braille textbooks, a typewriter, and a Braille writer. In gym class, I began a series on volleyball and thought it was too dangerous for her to play, so I asked her to help me keep score. This brought out an angry response. She turned, found her way to the door, and using her cane, she walked home. She told her mother I wouldn't let her play. Well, mother came back with her and assured me she would handle it in her own way. That day I learned a valuable lesson. Ask someone who is blind if they can manage a given task, telling them the details of what's involved. I also learned about blindness from a young lady who taught a class for the visually impaired in the same school as I in Springfield, Ohio. We became friends. I loved visiting in the home of someone blind and watching how she managed. We would often go out to eat with her guide dog curled up under the table between our feet. The day we ate Greek, she discovered an anchovy in her mouth and was not happy. Another time we were at a pancake house, and she plopped a ball of butter on her tongue. Spitting it out, she begged me, please tell me these things. So from these lessons learned, I was not afraid of, quote-unquote, marrying a blind man. 
and in fact, I did. Charlie and I married in 1992. We stayed in Ohio for four years. And yes, my mother took Charlie up on his offer of giving her a massage. She came to the conclusion that Charlie, although blind, was a great son-in-law. Moving to Arizona was a major change for us. It was a place I had wanted to be most of my life, and finally I had a chance to live in this beautiful state. Charlie retired from giving body massages, his customers were very unhappy, and I packed up. We had a house to sell and planned a drive cross-country. First we lived in Green Valley, south of Tucson, for five years. However, Charlie became overly dependent on me. There were no activities for the blind, nor was there transportation, so we decided it would be better to live in Tucson. We learned about Sunvan for the handicapped, providing door-to-door -door transportation, and then the various opportunities for the blind. There's an organization called Southern Arizona Association for the Visually Impaired, and that's abbreviated SAVI, S-A-A-V-I. This was the first on the list. Charlie added to his knowledge by taking various classes for many years. Some were meant for the newly blind, but even though Charlie had been blind since age 10, he did pick up some new tips, such as having me mark appliances, including the washer, dryer, TV control, the dishwasher, microwave, and toaster oven. I had purchased a pliable substance that left a dot and set up a system where three dots meant hot or large, two dots meant medium, and one meant cold or small. I found my husband to be quite capable in handling many household tasks. He loaded and emptied the dishwasher, gathered the garbage and took it out, retrieved the mail and newspaper, and managed the laundry with my help in sorting. He never commented on colors I chose or pictures I hung on the wall. He rose earlier than me and would fix his cereal with toast using the microwave for the egg. Next he would prepare my cereal and have it ready when he awakened me. Charlie and I had opportunity to travel extensively. We started with a small ship cruise to the inside passage of Alaska. We went cross-country using Amtrak to get to the embarkation point in Portland, Oregon. During the hours on the train, I read to him a book about Alaska, and using my voice, along with the motion of the train, I put him to sleep. We both loved the fresh air, and he felt the excitement when the first morning we woke up surrounded by icebergs. We joined a group going to the Holy Land. This was probably the hardest travel for both of us, but the reward made it worthwhile. I believe that Charlie was a good example and showed others that travel is possible for people who are blind. Using the white cane is the independent symbol of capability, plus it put others on the alert when it was obvious that he needed help. Our first night on this trip was almost a disaster. We had experienced extremely long travel time to arrive in Israel and spent our first night in a hotel in Tel Aviv. It seemed to me it was a good idea for each of us to take a Tylenol PM. Charlie had never had one. In the middle of the night, I heard a door close. After looking around the room and checking the bathroom, I found no Charlie. The door I heard had to be the one into the hallway. Looking out, in my nightgown, I saw him at the far end of the hall. With a loud 
but soft, psst, I called his name. He heard me and started inch by inch in the right direction. However, he was turning the handle to every room along the way. Well, this was thankfully the only time he sleepwalked. We also did cruises to Hawaii, the Columbia and Snake River in Oregon, and several more in the Caribbean. A Disney cruise with my two sons and their families was surprisingly wonderful. I expected a lot of noise from children, but that was not the case. As a couple, we joined a Lions Club and helped with various projects. We became members of a church and were active in several groups. Charlie continued taking classes at the SAVI, that's the Southern Arizona Association for the Visually Impaired, and he advanced his cooking skills. He tried out some of the meals at home and was quite proud of himself. He took a large number of painting and craft classes, including helping with a wall mural, using clay, copper tooling, and sanding and glazing all sorts of vases and plates that were then fired in a kiln. His family and I treasure them. Wherever he was, he said something that made people smile and understand that their life was not over because they were blind or had developed vision loss. We heard about a new group forming for the blind and visually impaired. The name of the organization was Tucson Society of the Blind, the TSB. Well, the difference between SAVI and TSB was the leadership. Savi was, as the title says, for the blind, with mostly sighted teachers, and TSB, the Tucson Society of the Blind, was of the blind. They offered weekly gatherings with speakers and many field trips. The board was made up of mostly blind and visually impaired members. Charlie's daughter and grandchildren live in Tennessee, and my two sons in Ohio. Every year we traveled east to visit, often driving cross-country with many motel overnights, since I was the only driver. Charlie was an easy traveler as long as he had his serious XM radio and his talking books. He took over the back seat. Only once did he get in serious trouble. I had gone down the hall of our motel to do laundry. Charlie had a bad habit of exploring the room whenever I was gone. He found a bag that appeared to be marshmallows, and he popped one into his mouth. It was a pod of detergent. I believe that people who are blind have more than five senses. Sight may be gone, but there is a sense of environment and nature that surprised me. Sounds not only measured in loudness, but also in distance and size of a room. The blind feel with their feet in ways I never thought of. When we lived in Ohio, Charlie could sense distance and tell me we were coming up on a particular exit, and he was right most of the time. I don't recall him ever complaining about his blindness. Several times he mentioned he wished he could see my face and those of his family. Outward appearances meant little although he did want to know what clothing I laid out for him each morning, and he often asked me what I was wearing. Charlie and I had been married almost 24 years the day he died in November of 2016. That came after three days of non-stop activity. 
He didn't get up at his usual 6.30 a.m., and later when I checked on him, he was no longer on this earth. He had gone to be with the Lord. Marrying a blind man was perhaps the best decision I ever made, especially since that man was Charles Barnhart. Once again, this was titled, He Don't See So Good, Charles Barnhart's Story, from the book by his wife, Margaret Barnhart. The book's title is Inspirational Stories of the Visually Challenged. This is available on Amazon and maybe from your local library. Next, I have two topics of information for you, which Charlie Barnhart found so helpful in his life. First, there'll be vision rehabilitation, and then we'll have a short section on paratransit. So first, what is vision rehabilitation? This comes from a website, visionaware.org. The term vision rehabilitation includes a wide range of professional services that can restore functioning after vision loss, just as physical therapy restores functioning after a stroke or other injury. Vision rehabilitation services allow people who have recently lost vision, people who are blind or have low vision, to continue to live independently and maintain their accustomed quality of life. Although your eye doctor is the professional you will likely turn to first when dealing with your own or with a family member's vision loss, it's important to note that many different kinds of vision rehabilitation services are available in addition to the eye care provided by your family doctor, by your ophthalmologist, optometrist, or even by your low vision specialist. In fact, your own doctor may not be aware of or may not offer to refer you to these comprehensive vision rehabilitation services, which are often provided through a state or not-for-profit rehabilitation agency at little or no out-of-pocket cost. So who provides vision rehabilitation services? Vision rehabilitation services for adults who have recently lost vision, are blind or have low vision, are provided by a team of specially trained professionals, which may include low vision therapists, orientation and mobility specialists, and vision rehabilitation therapists. That first term I use, low vision therapists, instruct individuals in the efficient use of remaining vision with optical devices, with non-optical devices, and even using assistive technology. They can help determine the need for environmental modifications in the home, in the workplace, or the school. Next, I mentioned orientation and mobility specialists. These are called the O&Ms. These people teach the skills and concepts that people who are blind or have low vision need in order to travel independently and safely in the home and out in the community. The O&Ms teach safe and independent indoor and outdoor travel skills, including the use of a long cane, electronic travel devices like GPS units, how to use public transportation, how to use a sighted guide, a human guide, and pre-cane skills. There was also something mentioned about vision rehabilitation therapists. These are the people that teach adaptive independent living skills, enabling adults who are blind or have low vision to confidently carry out a range of daily activities. These are abbreviated CVRTs, Certified Vision Rehabilitation Therapists, work with individuals in their homes, in rehabilitation facilities, and or employment settings. 
So what will I learn when I use a vision rehabilitation lessons and training? There are six that are mentioned here. First one, you will learn communication skills like reading and writing. You might learn Braille and you will be learned how to do assistive computer technology. The second one, you will have counseling to help you, your spouse, your family members and friends adjust to your vision loss. You will also learn about independent living and personal management skills like home modifications, home repairs, personal self-care, financial management, recreation and leisure activities, and simply using the telephone. Another thing you will learn is independent movement and travel skills. This is in addition to the O&M people. You will learn about moving safely outdoors and indoors, using transportation, using a long white cane. You will also learn low vision evaluations and training with low vision devices. This is the uh, low vision examination by optics for driving, low vision optical devices, non-optical devices such as handheld magnifiers, special reading glasses, telescopes, and high intensity lamps that can make the best use of remaining vision. These are what you will learn using a vision rehabilitation therapist. And one last thing they mention, vocational rehabilitation. If you're in the market getting back to work after a vision loss or breaking into the workplace as a job seeker with blindness or low vision, they will help you with including vocational evaluation and training, job training, job modification, and restructuring and job placement. So I would strongly suggest that you ask about vision rehabilitation. The next topic, paratransit. This information came from Wikipedia. It's spelled P-A-R-A-T-R-A-N-S-I-T, paratransit. This is the term used in North America for transportation services that supplement fixed route mass transit by providing individualized rides without fixed routes or timetables. Paratransit services may vary considerably on the degree of flexibility they provide their customers. At the very simplest, they may consist of a taxi or a small bus that will run along a more or less defined route, stopping and picking up or discharging passengers on request. At the other end of the spectrum, fully demand-responsive transport, the most flexible paratransit systems offer on-demand, call-up, door-to-door service from any origin to any destination within the service area. In addition to public transit agencies, paratransit services may be operated by community groups or by not-for-profit organizations and even for-profit private companies at some time. Typically, minibuses are used to provide paratransit service. Most paratransit vehicles are equipped with wheelchair lifts or ramps to facilitate access. In the United States, private transportation companies often provide paratransit service in cities and metropolitan areas under contract to local public transportation agencies. Now, I mentioned here in Rochester where this program originates, paratransit was used to be called Liftline. It's now called RTS Access. This stands for Regional Transit Service Access. You can apply at the website myrts.com or you can call them at area code 585-224-8330. And this is for people in the Rochester, New York area. In other areas, ask about the word paratransit. 
Well, to summarize a little bit, I hopefully the story of Charles Barnhart inspired you to find out more about vision rehabilitation and also about paratransit options where you live. Both can make you more independent. To end the program today, I have a quote for you to think about. Lots of people want to ride with you in a limo, but what you want is someone who will take the bus with you when the limo breaks down. This was said by Oprah Winfrey. I'm sure you know Oprah. Everybody does. But do you know that her official birth name was Orpah, O-R-P-A-H, Orpah Winfrey. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.